This morning we are going to be in Philippians 4. We are, we've been traveling through the, perusing through the book of Philippians. And um, this morning I hope that today's text is, is something that speaks to us. Um, we were just singing the song, He Will Hold Me Fast. When I think about the words of that song, that Christ hold, holds me fast, and the song we sang before that, that when I fight, I will fight on my knees. Those songs, when we sing them, um, I think are telling if we actually believe those truths that we were singing this morning. And so this morning, I hope that as we read this text, as we go through this text together, that we not just sing those songs, but we believe in faith this morning that God is the author of our faith, that he does hold us fast. He does carry us through. Our text this morning is Philippians 4, verses 4 through 9. So if you go ahead and open there in your Bibles, or it's on the screen if you don't have Bibles this morning. We also, uh, if you don't know, we, we have Bibles, I think, sometimes laying around. So if you need one, want one, forget yours, then, then um, maybe you could ask somebody. I don't know. Do we still have those? I don't know. Okay. All right. Well, anyways, they, they are here, if you're new to us. Um, Philippians 4, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the God of peace, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Whatever, or what you have heard, sorry, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. So Paul, um, we, as we've gone through this message, we've seen that uh, Paul is bringing Philippians to a close here, and in verses 4 through 9, he, he really emphatically gives three imperatives or commands in kind of like this rapid-fire succession. He says, rejoice, be gentle, and do not be anxious. And then those commands are followed by a list of qualities that should govern or give us a framework for our thinking, our thought life. And then he gives them a charge to imitate him, what they've seen and heard in him. And then he finishes with a promise, a promise from the God of peace. And so if anyone in here uh, are, are like me and you're, you're normal, then uh, this morning you might be scratching your head when you read some of these, these verses and you're asking the question, does Paul actually mean what he says here? He says, rejoice in the Lord always. And even if he did mean that, which is peculiar at best, um, how do we go about doing that? It's um, as if it wasn't enough already in chapter 2, Paul had already said, do all things without grumbling and complaining. And he pretty much adds insult to injury by saying, rejoice always. So not only are you to rejoice, you're also to do it without grumbling and complaining. So, if any of you figured this out, then we need to talk. 
All right? So did Paul mean what he says, and does the Bible mean what it says when he says rejoice? You know, this wasn't even just a suggestion um, or, or something he recommended as, this is best practice if you rejoice always. You know, always means always. It's not best practice if you do it always. Um, so he stated it as an imperative, as a command, rejoice. And I think it's easy for many of us to come to these verses and we minimize or overlook, uh, overlook certain pa- aspects of the passage, like, for instance, the word always. It sits a lot better with me, I don't know about you, but it sits a lot better with me if I just think Paul were to say, rejoice in the Lord. I mean, that's what he said in verse, uh, chapter 3 at the beginning of the chapter. Uh, he said, rejoice in the Lord. But here he adds, always. Um, and so why did he have to add that other word? That just pretty much made it unachievable. Um, so had he not done that, I think, I think yeah, we, we would have all, all really liked this verse a lot. But it just doesn't sit well with me sometimes. So rejoice in the Lord always. And just, um, I, you know, he, he goes on in and he says, I think, I think we can say the same thing about the other imperatives he gives when he says, uh, let your gentleness be known and don't be anxious. Well, I could do that. I could let my gentleness be known. I can not be anxious. Um, but it's the qualifiers that actually make it hard. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. And don't, do not be anxious about anything, or some translations, be anxious about nothing. And so those qualifiers, does he mean them? How do we even begin to live those out? So Paul said to imitate his example. My question is, did Paul live those out? Um, you know, when he's writing this letter, even as he's penning this letter, you can hear just joy resounding in his letter. In fact, the word joy has appeared throughout Philippians four times, and the word rejoicing, which is something that comes from joy, it's the outward expression of joy, it appears in this letter nine times. And that repetition is significant because it is the overarching theme, one of the overarching things that we see in Philippians. So Paul has mentioned that he finds joy in his partnership with the Philippians in their partnership with the gospel, for the gospel. Uh, he's, he says he's confident that he's going to remain in the world rather than dying, which he would rather do. He's going to remain in the world so that their joy, he's going to remain for their joy. Um, he says that uh, they're striving after one-mindedness and selfless, the selfless attitude of Christ would make his joy complete. Um, he says of them, he says, they themselves are his joy and crown. And I could go on and on. Um, he says that they should, uh, or he, he rejoices in his own suffering, that his life is being poured out like a drink offering for the sake of their faith. He's rejoicing in that. And then he he has, he's bold enough to say, you should rejoice that your life is being poured out. And so we see this idea of rejoicing and joy that is going throughout the whole chapter. And, and uh, the first half of the book, we see it applied as Paul, to Paul uh, referring to himself, his own life in Christ. But then in chapter 3, he begins to turn that command, turn that into a command for them, rejoice in the Lord. And then he says in verse uh, chapter 4 here, rejoice in the Lord always. You know, when we look at, I think, this book, and when we look at Scripture as a whole, we see in this book, Philippians, we see a theme that we are created and we exist for one 
purpose, and that is to intimately know and to enjoy and be satisfied in God, our creator. Psalm 16, verse 11 says, you have made known to me the path of life, and in his presence is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And you know who sits at the right hand of God? Jesus. Jesus said, he came that we would have life and have it abundantly. And Paul says that knowing Jesus is of surpassing worth, more desirable than life itself. Colossians, all things were created through him and for him. You were created for him, to know him. And so we see Jesus speaking of his desire for his people. He says, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. These things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. And so we see this purpose, and we know from experience, we know that this is, and we see it in Scripture confirmed, that this is our purpose. But I think many of us believe it. It's not that we don't believe that is true. I think the struggle here when we see Paul's words, rejoice in the Lord always, the, the struggle is that when we look at our own lives, and the reality of our own experience, we don't feel like our life is a continuous stream of intimacy with God. We just don't feel that way. And so we struggle to live with joy like Paul does as an overarching virtue of our own lives because um, we view joy kind of like, and anxiety for, for that matter, kind of like we view other emotions like love, for instance. as a, We view them as a product of our emotions rather um, than being subject to our will. And our emotions are dictated by our circumstances. And so joy is actually held captive by our circumstances. Inaccessible, if we believe that, in the midst of a trial. And so, that may be one reason why we struggle with joy, but I think Scripture speaks of another reason And I think it's an even greater threat than that, than our circumstances or ourselves. If we believe that we were existed to be in intimate communion with God and to be known by him and share his life with him, and we also believe that what scripture says, that we have an enemy whose aim is to steal, kill, and destroy. And his strategy, I don't think, is, is... so much for the believer, if you're in Christ today and you believe, I don't think his strategy is to come and convince you that God isn't real. I don't even think his strategy is to convince you um, that the Bible isn't true and it's not trustworthy. I think his strategy, and we see Peter talking about the schemes and strategies of the enemy, that the, he has tactics. I think his strategy is to subtly and slowly rob you of the thing that brings purpose to your existence. It's to crowd and flood your life with things that would slowly pull you away from God. The things that seem to promise life and fulfillment 
and purpose, but they leave you empty, feeling wasted and without purpose. And so when it comes to anxiety, Paul says, don't be anxious about anything. I think there's a great many sources. Um, We worry about the loss of loved ones. We worry about illness. We worry about reputation. We worry about our reputation on social media, as if that's something different. Um, Relationship conflicts. We We worry about our possessions. We worry about our profession, our income, finances, economy, retirement, spiritual decline of our culture and nation. There are plenty and numerous opportunities for our hearts to become distracted from the purpose that God has made us for. And so it's not, um, it's, not our situation, it's not our situations or our circumstances that are our actual problem. To be clear, it's actually um, our anxiety about the situations that's our real problem. So how we feel or we react to our problems becomes our actual problem. And so Matthew, Jesus actually deals with this in Matthew 6. He says, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And Jesus is contrasting two realities here, that there is a life of anxiety and there's a life of seeking God and being in his righteousness. And And he's pointing out that anxiety about the things of life, is one of the greatest barriers to experiencing the purpose that God has given us in life. And so I think that's what Jesus was teaching about when we look at um, the parable of the sower in Mark 4. It says there was a sower, he said there was a sower and he went out to sow seed and the seed was the word of life and some of the seeds fell among the thorns and the thorns grew up and it choked it out and it yielded no grain. And he explains that to the disciples, he says, um, they... Those people, they hear the word of God, they hear the word of life, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires of of other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. And so Jesus says that Satan's greatest tactic to fill up and burden you, or to, to distract you from him, is to fill you up and burden you with anxiety and keep you from fulfilling the purpose that God has designed you for and calls you to. And so the word becomes choked out by the worries of life and it creeps in and it destroys peace and it robs us of joy. So this is, I think, I find this really odd because historically, we live in a generation and in a world that I think has, um, relatively speaking, we are one of the safest generations that has ever lived in history. I mean, when you think about even the poorest among us has a modern comforts that exceed luxuries that royalty had a couple centuries ago. I mean, we have clean food and water that we don't have, have to worry about. Uh, we've got climate-controlled dwellings. Uh, we've got climate-controlled transportation. That was nice. I bet you're enjoying that this morning. Um, we've got free time, we've got expendable income, we've got inexhaustible entertainment. You kill yourself on it, just trying to get through it, literally. And yet, I think in, um, I think our, in our comfort-saturated, entertainment-saturated world, anxiety disorders are one of the leading psychiatric disorders in the country. And so anxiety 
is a condition of the heart. And anxiety is not only a problem in itself, it can also lead to other problems in our life. When I'm anxious about missing out on something, as somebody told me, just so you know that I'm preaching to myself today, <laughs> a friend, a good friend, I won't name his name, said, Tristan, you have the worst FOMO that I, if anybody I've ever met, you know what FOMO is? F-O-M, yeah, fear of missing out. You know, when I, when I have a fear of missing out on something, then I will break my commitments in order to get to something else. Okay, so it leads me to compromise. If I have fear or anxiety, worry about my finances, then I might make unethical decisions. If, I'm fear about, if I have fear about dating uh, or finding somebody to marry, I might it lead me to compromise. Um, if I have fear about testing, I'll cheat. If I have a fear about my appearance, it might lead me to some kind of de- eating disorder. Or um, if I have fear about my own reputation, it might lead me to be dishonest or, unchar- or to uncharacteristic and odd around people so that I can get their attention in their favor. So, I mean... Uh, I think even beyond that, anxiety can lead to worse things. It can lead a person down the road of addictions in an attempt to numb and comfort ourselves. And anxiety can actually literally kill you. I don't know how many of you have ever had an anxiety attack, but it's not a fun experience. Your physical body begins to respond to something that's going on emotionally in you. And we obsess about a dis... Uh, we have an asset... Uh, sorry, an obsessive... Obs- let's see if I can say this right. A disproportional... Or, or an obsession about a... a dispro- okay. I'm going to rewind. <laughs> <laughs> we obsess and have disproportional concern about a hypothetical situation that actually causes damage to our physical bodies. Something that's not real begins to affect something that is physical. And so I just, I'm gonna throw a disclaimer out here as we're looking at this passage about anxiety and thinking about what do we do? How do we respond to this? Uh, I wanna wanna just point out something. my knowledge about anxiety is not exhaustive, okay? So I'm not an expert, and I'm not trying to say that, I, I'm not saying at all that modern medical wisdom is bad. Um, God has given us the tools to use, certain tools to use, and I think we need to use them, and we shouldn't discount scientific medicine. And I think that tr- uh, true science and the Word of God, they don't contradict each other. They don't. Uh, but we do have a great physician. And so I believe that um, though we should be, I, I think as, as a hesitation, that would be cautious of submitting medicine for the word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. We can't give to men what only God can do. So there are, are things that we don't understand about the mind and body. And physical and, chemi- physical and chemical solutions don't fix spiritual problems. All right? So the question I would ask this morning as we continue through this is who, what or who are you relying on? Who are you placing your faith in? So um, when we look at the word anxiety, just a quick side note, um, the word anxious here is actually com- translated in some other places about li- uh, as the word concern. And just one previous chapter, we see actually Timothy is concerned for the church. He's anxious for the church. It's translated anxious here. 
And that's not actually uh, something that's spoken about as negative. That's actually good concern. And so I think there are things that we can be concerned about. It's when our concern um, or desire for something is accompanied by a disproportional fear that we're going to lose something, and that turns into worry. That's where it becomes a problem. And so there's actually a kind of fear as well. When we talk about anxiety and worry, fear is something that God desires for us to have, but there's a godly fear and there's an ungodly fear. And I think there's a concern that is healthy and there's a concern that is sinful. That's what Jesus was dealing with in Matthew 6. So Paul's words seem to be echoing Matthew 6. And he just, Jesus just finishes teaching about money and treasure and begins to talk about worry. And so if I could get, if you have your Bibles, we're going to turn to Matthew 6, verse 25 through 34. And I just want to read Jesus' words on anxiety as a reminder. He says, Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on, is not the body more than food and the body more than clothing? Oh, sorry. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, not even Solomon and all his glory, Solomon and all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, he will, will he not much more clothe you, O little of faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So this text, I think Jesus gives us five reasons to not let anxiety rule us. And I've got to say, I really am preaching to myself because um, of all the, week, all the weeks of, I think, the past few months, um, I have had more anxiety in just preparing a sermon about anxiety than I have for all of them combined. <laughs> so I've had to live this out. I've had to believe this myself. I've struggled. Um, so, so as we look at, let's look at uh, five points that I think that Jesus is saying uh, why not to let anxiety rule your, your life. These would be pretty quick. First of all, is worrying is pointless. Look at verse 27 and verse 34. You can't even add an hour to your life. You can't extend the time of the day. So why worry about it? You're better off just letting tomorrow worry about tomorrow because there's already enough trouble today and tomorrow can't even worry at all. So in other words, it doesn't make sense. Okay? So worrying is pointless. Um, I got a little excerpt from uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson. It's a, a poem about anxiety and he wrote, some of your... Um, some of your hurts you've cured, and the sharpest you still have survived. But what torments of grief 
you've endured from evils that never arrived. Sometimes we worry about things that have never arrived. He, he also says that God provides. If he provides for the fields, he's going to provide for you. Uh, your heavenly Father feeds the birds. Are you not more valuable than they? Um, also, worrying, um, he compares, Jesus compares worrying to a practice of the Gentiles, a practice of unbelievers. And so, you know, when we, when we go through trials and difficulties in our life, um, when we respond in a way that we are waving our hands and fretting and that God has lost control, that's really what we're communicating. And so, um, he says, the Gentiles seek after the things of the world. They pursue, um, they, they, they pursue and they worry about the treasures of the world and the, the desires of the flesh. And so, um, our testimony, you know, when we go through a moment like this or in our lives, when we have things that can cause us worry, um, I, I, you know, I just have to ask myself, do I look like the rest of the world when I'm in the midst of worrying about the things of the world? Because our testimony about Jesus is not effective when we say that he's the Prince of Peace, but then we're bustling around and we're fretting and worrying about everything because he has not in control. And so, faith in your heavenly Father's provision provides an inward peace that outwardly demonstrates God's love for you. So, um, a fourth thing is that Jesus, I think, says here that God knows what we need more than we do. He does. He knew what we needed in this moment. He knows what we need every day when we awake. Um, the fifth thing is that, that God will provide everything we need as we seek his kingdom, as we seek him, his righteousness. In Romans 14, Paul says, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating or drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. And so how do we fight anxiety? And even right now, even right now, in this moment. I think that the, we have to realize that God did not create us to live with anxiety in our heart. Paul says, be anxious about nothing. And so just as we're not intended to live in anger, we shouldn't live in worry. I think there's a sinful worry, and worrying can be sinful, just like gossip is sinful. Envy, malice, or sexual sin can be sinful. Worry can be sinful. And so we need to replace anxious thoughts with thankfulness. Anxious thoughts replaced by thankfulness. And if we think correctly, then our emotions will come into line with our right thinking. And so Paul even gives us these guidelines, these parameters for what we think about. He says, whatever's true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, and praiseworthy, then contemplate those things. And so, thinking as Paul's addressing it here, it's not a matter of academic or intellect, 
Uh, it's not an intellectual exercise. How we think, uh, how we think, and what we think about, how long we think about it, how exhaustively we think about it, and all that affect not just uh, the academic and intellectual r- realm of our life, but they affect our hearts, attitudes, and our dispositions. So how we think affects whether or not we will rejoice, whether or not we will be thankful, or whether we will worship, or whether we'll be worriers. Um, And if we think rightly and thoroughly, it'll cause us to live rightly before God with a fear of God. So um, our thinking needs to be shaped by the revelation of God, by the word of God. And what God has made known of himself through his word and through creation, that is the lens through which we should see all things and the lens through which we think about all things. It is the filter for how we perceive our own lives, our own heart, and how we live. And so, um, Jesus says to cast our cares on him. We cast our cares on him. Do not be, Paul says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So when we have anxiety, what do we do? We go to him. We go vertical. Um, and I just got to ask, you know, in a moment like this, and, and I think in our own lives, what do you do? When you feel anxiety creeping in on you, what do you do? Who do you go to? Who do we go to? Do you try to escape the anxiety? Do you try to numb it with something? Do I avoid it? Or do I take it on, go to my knees and go to him and say, this is where I'm at, Lord. This is what I'm feeling. What do I do with this? And then find reasons for thankfulness because of Christ's work. So, Psalm 55, verse 22 says, Cast your burden on the Lord, and he will sustain you. Oh God, do we need to be sustained right now? It says he will never permit his righteous to be moved. You know, right now, when I think about anxiety, I was going to use this illustration, I'll use it real quick, but when we think about casting our burdens on to God, we don't cast them on and then start worrying about it again. I know there's some people in this room that play Frisbee golf. A few of you? Anybody? Play Frisbee golf? Yeah. Okay, so when you, I don't know if you've ever watched some of these guys. I've only Frisbee golf a few times. I enjoy it. But, you know, when, you, when they go to Frisbee golf and then they throw it and they release it, right? They cast it and then they go like this. You already released it. You're not changing the direction of it, okay? So when you take your worries before God, your anxiety before God, and then you, and then you cast them on him, Don't pick it back up again. Don't pick it back up. Leave them in his hands. He is sufficient to care for your needs. In Matthew 7, Jesus said, If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask? Trust him for that. I think the last thing we got to do is fight anxiety with truth and with promise. He says, 
in Philippians 4, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And he says in verse 9, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So God promises peace that guards our hearts and our minds. And so before um, you bring your anxieties to him, or as you bring your anxieties to him, he guards you. Not before, but as you bring them to him. Then you can have access. So he says, be anxious for nothing. In everything pray, and he will guard. In that order. And then he said, I, I think he guards you regardless or sorry, he, he, he guards you irregardless of the answer he's going to give you to your petition. You can go and cast your anxieties and you can make a petition, you can request, but regardless of his answer, he is going to guard you. That's his promise that he will guard you. And the term guard here, um, it, it, it actually would have um, brought Im- imagery to the Philippians because the, the term guard or to keep and to preserve is a term that was used of a military, a military detachment of soldiers that would stand guard over a city from its attack, uh, to, to guard it from attack. And so uh, the idea was that the peace of God is guarding you. Uh, they would have thought of a garrison guarding the city. God's peace is not, act, it's not passive. It's not just the lack of conflict It's not just inner tranquility. God's peace is actually actively guarding you. It's way more than a lack of conflict. It guards your hearts and mind. It deters assaults. His peace is an impenetrable bulwark. And God is working and willing his purpose in you as he guards you, empowering you to respond with weapons of divine power to destroy strongholds, to destroy arguments in every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, including your anxieties and worries and concerns. So, God is actively guarding you. Um, When I think about the joy and the source of joy that Paul is talking about here and rejoicing and finding our joy in him, then I, I think about Jesus' words in John 15, which I read earlier. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and your joy may be made full. You know, joy is not something we muster up, or peace. We don't conjure it up. We don't, in fact, this peace is beyond understanding. We can't think, we can't even um, intellectually grasp it. We can't retain it with our intellect. This is not about concentration. This is not about intelligence. It, is, it comes through faith, and it is found in him. 
And so when we think of the source of joy, how can Paul live the way he did and go through the things he did and then still say, rejoice in the Lord always. And I think the reason why he can say that is because of what Jesus says here. I've spoken these things that my joy may be in you. Joy is not yours. It is his. God's joy and favor towards Jesus becomes our joy and favor when we put our faith in him. That is what sustains us. It's his perfect righteousness, which he earned, which earned him God's, the Father's eternal pleasure and favor becomes credited to your account. His death removes your guilt sentence. His reward for perfect obedience to the point of humiliating himself on a cross becomes your reward also. And just as he was raised from the dead, so are those in him, they will be raised from the dead at his return. His exaltation to the Father's side will be the same reward that you get, your exaltation. His humiliation becomes your exaltation and his joy becomes yours. And that is where we find, I think, the strength to be able to rejoice in the midst of trials. So, when Jesus returns, as we place our faith in him, um, when I think about the thing that will most, the thing that will most impact me is to hear the words that Jesus says in Matthew 25, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into your master's joy.